And then I think most importantly, and this can't get lost in the conversation, is not all valuations are created equal. You could have two, you know, $100 million offers, and depending on the structure that someone puts on it, they could be very different offers. And I think a lot of founders, are, more often than not, get very caught up in the headline number of, you know, I got valued at X, and kind of maybe overlook some of the more qualitative parts of the deal, especially from a legal perspective, where, you know, maybe you have more liability in one versus the other. But not all deals are created equal. Valuation is really only one component of a deal. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership. Allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. Uh, today, you got me, Christian, your host. And then we also got co-host Dan Claps here from a car today. What's going on, Dan? <laughs> yep, doing the mobile podcast because I've uh, been jetting around today and I'm on Long Island and meeting ran over, knew that there was no way I was going to get through that traffic back to the city and make it here. But no one will know because we're not putting out a video. Yeah, you didn't want me to mention that, but... That's just how committed Dan was. And that's how exciting our guest is today. Dan didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to miss it. Didn't want to reschedule. And the importance of today's podcast, I think, is we're going to be talking to a teammate, I guess you could call him. They're a full-service M&A advisory firm. So they help with the buying and selling of franchisors and different companies within the franchise space. If I got anything wrong, I'll let him correct me on that. But it's crucially important for franchise founders to be prepared when they're thinking about selling their franchise things that they have to do ahead of time, ways that they have to prepare if they want to maximize value, maximize their multiple, and really just be in a good position for when they make that transition. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm going to turn it over to our guests so that I don't continue to sound ignorant. So Brian Ales, welcome to the podcast, man, with Boxwood Partners. Thanks, Christian, Dan. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on and excited to be here. I didn't know that I was supposed to travel, by the way, with a traveling mic for podcasts so I can do it from my car if I needed to. But now I've learned something new from Dan. That's how you know how prepared I was that, you know, something would go wrong. It always goes wrong with the guests you're really excited to have on. Like we had Jeff Duden on a few weeks ago and every technological issue that could happen happened. But then when we have someone else, obviously we love all of our guests, but we have someone else, you know, that we're maybe less high status will no issues. So of course, we had to have an issue or two here with you on the show, but thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool, man. So I think a cool place to start would obviously be like we ask everybody you know, about your background and how you got into what you're doing. How did you get from point A to point Z to where you are now? Sure. No, I appreciate the intro. Again, uh, Brian Lass with Boxwood Partners. I'm a managing director here. Been here almost 10 years now. And we've obviously built out a really successful franchise, pun intended, within franchising. Prior to this, like Dan, I actually grew up in New York on Long Island. So I'd be curious as to where he is today, but ended up coming down to the University of Richmond to play baseball back in college. Moved back to New York after school, worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC in accounting, spent a little time in audit, and then moved over to our MA team, which is called Transaction Services, which if you're a founder out there, you'll get to know those teams because the buyers typically hire them to come do a quality of earnings report on you and dig into your numbers. So I have the benefit of kind of being on that side of the table. Joined up my colleague, Pat, 
where I interned here back actually in college, joined him in 2013 and been here ever since. You know, I think from a number of deal perspective, I don't think anyone's done as many deals as we have in the home services space over the last couple of years, but we've also done a number of transactions in health and wellness, fitness, restaurant. So we've kind of spanned all sectors within franchising. So excited to be here to tell a little bit more about our story and kind of help your founders and your listeners kind of learn a few things here today. For sure. And before we jump into that, I mean, what attracted you to this side of the business? I mean, M&A, what's that all about? It's always a game and it's a rush, right? You know, there's a lot of college athletes that are in the investment banking world because it's fast-paced, team-oriented, and about kind of winning for your client. So, you know, always been drawn to kind of the game of M&A and the psychology and negotiation and deals. and this kind of put together, I think, strengths in, you know, I was an accounting undergrad and recovering CPA from my time at PwC. But I think it kind of blends a little bit of the best of both worlds. I had a ton of fun. Got into franchising. This is kind of interesting. We were actually trying to help sell a company back in 2013, 2014. And then long story short, we ended up taking over the company and actually running it for the founder. And that business was Sweet Frog Frozen Yogurt. So. I know way more about frozen yogurt than I care to elaborate on, but we really got to see, you know, Pat was chairman and CEO for a number of years. You brought up Jeff Duden earlier, Dan. I mean, Jeff was one of our first clients in franchising after we sold Sweet Frog. So we really kind of had an opportunity to learn franchising kind of firsthand, right? Which I think gave us a leg up when talking to someone like Jeff and then one of our other first clients in Barry Falcon at Shelf Genie. So we really got a chance to understand the nuances of the FDD, right? Item 19, how to position item 7, the good, the bad, and the ugly of lawsuits that you have to put in your FDD and the like. So I think that really kind of was a differentiator for us early on and paid dividends for us to kind of be able to walk the walk and talk the talk within franchising. So what led to that decision to make? I don't know if you are in other verticals outside of franchising as well, but... We are, yeah. So franchising after those two transactions, you know, became a focus or, you know, what's the desire? Why franchising is such a focus? You know, quite honestly, we went on a hot streak, right? We kind of really started to get intertwined into the home services space after Clean and after Shelf Genie the first time around. And, you know, quite honestly, I think impeccable timing on both of those deals, right? Because if you go back a little bit, and you think about when home services came in focus, it was right around that time, right? Authority brands. Well, I guess it started when Neighborly traded the first time back to Harvest Partners in 2018 timeframe. Then Authority Brands was started when APAC stepped in and bought cleaning authority from PNC River Arch. And home franchise concepts was already kind of up and running. So I think yet we kind of got in in the early innings, recognized that there were some significant macro tailwinds behind the sector and the industry, and were able to. Just capitalize on that, stay close, learn the players, and kind of seek out specific opportunities that we thought could make sense for some of those platforms. And fast forward five years later, I think we sold the business to every strategic buyer in home, residential, and commercial services out there, including starting kind of a new platform within Links when we sold outdoor living brands. So it's been a real good space for us to be in. You know, we are starting to see, and you're going to see us in the next six to eight months, a lot more deals in health and wellness, personal care, boutique fitness, and even a restaurant concept as well. So you're going to start to see a little bit more from us. But we just love the franchise model. And I think we understand kind of how to position it with investors. That's excellent. So I'm listening to this 
podcast. I'm a founder of a franchise brand. You know, thinking about the prospect of having an exit now or two years from now, before we started recording, you mentioned start thinking about this before you're ready to make a transaction start happening. But can you talk about like what stage or when should a founder start to reach out to a company like Boxwood? Yeah, I would say we do a pretty good job on outbound in terms of reaching out to folks and starting to get on their radar. Shout out to Lane Fisher and Brad Fishman. They put together Springboard. We were there a couple of weeks ago. I've always found Springboard really beneficial for us because I feel like we're getting to know some of the up-and-coming concepts across franchising when we get there. And someone asked me, is Springboard helpful? I said, you know, it's, it's really... It usually takes about two years from the time we meet someone at Springboard to kind of a completed transaction, right? So I always kind of recommend and say, hey, listen, the sooner we can open up lines of communication, the better. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I think we can start to educate founders on how you know private equity or investors are going to look at their business, right? You know, at Springboard, one of the panels my colleague Pat was on, most investors don't care about franchise fee income, right? So everyone will say, hey, I sold 100 franchises. But at the end of the day, it's really that royalty and the recurring kind of revenue that you want to kind of focus on. So there's certain things that we can kind of help position, help them think critically about kind of how to build the organization to, to better prepare it for a sale. And I think, you know, Jeff Duden said something to us when we we're selling to Vandaclean and going through the process of kind of getting ready. And he said, you know, I never really thought about building the business back from what I want it to look like when I sell it versus how to get it to where it needs to be. So I think we're just a good sounding board and can kind of help in those early innings to kind of get someone ready. It reminds me of the book Built to Sell by John Warrillow or The Art of Selling Your Business, right? Where he talks about your reverse engineering and you have to start with the end in mind. Right. And even if you don't walk into the process thinking, I want to sell this someday, I mean, the odds are you're going to sell it. Most businesses don't succeed into the second, third, fourth generations. So having the end in mind, thinking about the exit, preparing for it makes sense. So yeah, what are some of those things that they need to be thinking about to maximize their valuation, multiple, et cetera? I mean, obviously, the recurring revenue of the royalty income is critical, but how do we get there and how do we present the business and the brand in such a way that it's appealing to private equity? Always got to start with the product, service, or, or offering, right? What's your competitive advantage? What's the niche? Why do you win? Right. I think no matter what, if you go back and look at all the concepts that we've been able to sell, there's a competitive advantage to them. So I always kind of start with that, right? Hey, do you have a good business? And what's your moat and why do you win? I think second thing to kind of think about up front, and we've seen so many franchisors that probably don't do a good enough job of this up front because it's cost prohibitive, is hiring the proper accounting and finance support. More often than not, we have to go in and do some sort of pre-closing tax reorganization because, you know, you set up the franchise entity, then you have your corporate location, and then there's a real estate entity. And then inevitably, every franchise founder we've ever met thinks they have a proprietary technology platform that, you know, they can sell to everyone else at some point in time. And next thing you know, you have four different entities, four different tax structures, and you try to consolidate it to go sell. And I would say it just causes a lot more headaches than needed. So I think just understanding kind of how to set up your organization from day one and getting the proper legal and accounting and tax advice improves dividends and making sure you kind of have that personal board of directors of folks that have gone through this before and the pitfalls. I don't know how you do a transaction without working with a firm like yours. I had a small transaction. And when I look back on, I went afterwards, I wish I did 
prior, but I went and I was a lunatic. I read every book I could find on these transactions. Yeah. And I know so much more than I knew before. But it's interesting if you work with a firm, first of all, like, I mean, if you're a great entrepreneur, you'll have a couple exits, but more likely than not, most people, it's this one transaction you have. It's your major liquidity event. It's your retirement. It's your generational wealth. A lot of times now for in this industry, in my opinion, the most important planning that you can do is that exit that you're preparing for. Yeah. And I think it's just an education thing, Dan, right? And you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're getting started and you're looking to build an organization, every day is a whirlwind. <laughs> And you're thinking about so many different things that, you know, sometimes it's difficult to see the forest from the trees. And you're worried about getting the next franchisee up or you have a frustrated customer, you got to go do customer service or dealing with a vendor and an issue there. It's hard to think about, right? So it's always not top of mind. So I think just getting some of the conversations with us started earlier or someone like Lane at Fisher Sucker, right, to help you kind of on the legal side and make sure you're appropriately, you know, in line FDD wise, tax wise, making sure you're talking to folks. You know, estate and trust planning, if you're trying to do some of that stuff, all of that stuff, the earlier you do it, the better off you're going to be and makes for an easier transaction. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like if you're a million dollar company now, operate and have the infrastructure in place as if you're a $100 million company, have the EOS model in place, have traction in place because it's better to have it in place now versus trying to retroactively put it in place, right? Yeah, and I want to be really clear about this. I'm not telling people to go out there and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on infrastructure, right? I mean, we're talking about ten to twenty thousand dollars of tax advice, right? Of hey, I want to be able to position to sell this business in three years. How should I structure my entities to make sure that when we go to sell, there's no you know, double taxation or ability to roll over equity tax free, or I want to set up a state and trust for family members and use the lowest valuation possible, right? I mean. Go get yourself a good tax accountant or tax advisor that can help you think through what those structures are up front. So that way you have the ability to kind of be flexible when deals come up. So that's really, it's not a, hey, go build this infrastructure as if like, you know, a hundred million dollar company and we got 17 positions of fixed costs. No, it's, it's just make sure you check the box early on in the adventure that you're going through and building your organization to kind of make sure you have the ability to exit smoothly. So. Let's talk about, this is a selfish question. I'm asking purely for myself. Yeah. But no, I'm kidding. I really love that book, Christian, that you mentioned, Built to Sell. And I know for me, I've decided that whatever I build next, I like to think I'm building a box that I know someone's going to come and take from me. So what would you say, like, if there's a franchise founder listening right now, what's the perfect business? I don't know if there's a one-size-fit-all. I really go back to just making sure you network with people who have gone through it before and call the Jeff Dudens of the world, the Barry Falcons, Josh Kolnick, you mentioned earlier, Christian, Zach Payton, Superior Fence, Chris Grand Prix, Outdoor Living Brands, Kerry Gilly, Franchise Fastlane. If you're interconnected in the franchise industry, odds are you know someone who knows someone who's been through the process before. And I just think kind of taking the time to make those phone calls and get educated on what's coming down the line is really helpful to kind of do upfront. And then again, just focus on your business, right? And at the end of the day, I think in franchising, the best entrepreneurs you've met are their customers or their franchisees, right? And what can you do as a franchisor to truly support your franchisees to make them successful? And I will say that's something our clients, all the ones that we've had an opportunity to work with, have really focused a lot more on the actual franchisee than the end customer. Not only wrong, it's important, 
to keep the end customer happy with a product service experience, but empower your franchisees to give them the tools to kind of go make that a differentiated experience for the end customer. Whether it be call center, local marketing, franchise development, whatever it may be, I think the best franchisors that we've come across have really focused on their customer being the franchisee. And definitely feel like that's definitely something that we've seen be really successful over the last couple of years. No doubt. It's like the Chick-fil-A model, right? If we take care of our employees, they're going to take care of the customer. And that came across in the episode with Jeff Duden too. I mean, you could tell that he legitimately cares about his franchisees being successful. And I think the guy actually genuinely cares. And I think the most successful founders genuinely do care. But even from a selfish standpoint, obviously, if they're doing better, you're collecting more in royalty income, right? Yep. Absolutely. But it's the little things, right? Like how much can you take off their plates and support them to allow them to go out and be the advocates for your brand that you want them to be, right? And I think Jeff has obviously done that well, but I really think that it's core. What are the pain points for your customers and kind of what can the franchisor do to kind of alleviate those? And those turn into really successful franchisors. Love that. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. So you have a franchise founder, they have a successful franchise brand, and they're thinking about getting ready to exit. They've engaged with you a couple of years prior. They started getting everything ready, but now it's getting to the point where they're really finally ready to execute a transaction. Can you, I guess, walk us through the process or walk us through exactly kind of what it is you're doing, how you're helping them, some of the service offerings you guys are providing? Yeah, so I would tell you, we use this kind of in the office. We play a lot of defense to play offense. And what we mean by that is we spend a lot of time with the data and kind of go pretty deep on our data analytics and analysis to kind of make sure that we are in a position to defend how we're positioning the company, right? And what we're trying to highlight. Some examples of that are going really, really deep on end customer data. You know, understanding, for example, you know, we sold two maids and a mop, understanding how sticky that customer offer is and look at attrition for those underlying customers at the franchisee level. And we had visibility into some of that with their call center, right? So we were able to kind of understand who that customer was, first time they called, frequency, revenue by customer. You know, another example was duty calls, which we sold to authority brands. We had 11 years of history of the corporate entity by customer. Right. So we went really deep into kind of our analysis of like, Hey, what did it cost to acquire a customer? What is the lifetime value of that customer? And I think showing people and investors and eventually authority brands kind of how sticky that service offering was, was really critical. And it wasn't something that they had necessarily off the shelf. Right. It was in QuickBooks and they had it kind of there with, you know, addresses and zip codes, but I don't think they were thought of it that way. And then we come to realize that, you know, close to 25 or 30% of the business was commercial because they're actually engaged with the HOAs versus the underlying customers, right? So breaking out that revenue stratification by residential versus commercial, showing the different applications of the business model, all of that kind of stuff we do upfront. Similarly, we'll typically encourage our clients to engage a third party accounting firm to do a quality of earnings, right? Better understand kind of your business where the gaps are, whether or not there's some adjustments. You know, most founders, I wouldn't say not 100% of all expenses in the P&L are always related to the business, but maybe finding where some of those are right, and making sure that we're showing kind of the true earnings of the business. So a lot of that work goes in upfront and it takes us some time to 
get our arms around all of that. But that's the crux of the work for the first six or eight weeks that we're doing alongside management teams and usually the CFO or director of operations and better understanding kind of what makes the business tick. It's pretty interesting how you guys start setting the business up and provide that analytics where the founder can see this data and start making changes immediately, right? Through the process. Yeah. But it kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, just engaging us earlier, right? I mean, we're happy to do some of this pro bono up front, you know, send us your P&L so that way we understand kind of what we're looking at and let us get our arms around. So we definitely do that kind of stuff up front. You know, we'll say coming out of Springboard, and we were talking to a brand that got pretty beat up by COVID. I said, hey, send us the P&L, send us the data that you have so we can get our arms around it. And by the time we're done with it, I was like, hey, here are the four things you need to focus on for the next 18 months. You know, here are the same store sales we think we want to see. Yeah. Wouldn't worry too much about COVID. It's recapturing some of that demand now. But that conversation's happened the last three weeks. And you know, that probably will be a client in 2023, 2024 timeframe. But it's stuff like that that I think we can kind of help up front in terms of that pre-engagement consulting or advisory work that we can say, hey, we'll invest in the relationship here. We'll spend some time on this and right. give you our thoughts. So that way, you know, at least you know how someone else is going to look at this come whenever you're ready to sell. Wow. So they can engage with you, get some value, go ahead and course correct or improve the business and hopefully engage at a later date. Right. And one of the things we do, I'll tell you up front, is we'll make at least three or four introductions to former clients. I can't sit here and tell you that I've started a franchise from zero units and brought it to 100, on its way to 200. And I know exactly what it feels like to be in your shoes. But I do think that we have a number of clients who have done that and have gone through the process. So we typically try to make some introductions early on. So that way they can kind of hear the do's and don'ts and what ifs and what if I did this and what if I did that kind of early on in the process. So they can start thinking about things a little bit differently. So switching gears a little bit, and I don't know if this is an answer you can give, so I'm going to preface with that. But is there any type of empirical data that if someone engages with a boxwood or let's just say a firm in general, right, versus going through the transaction themselves, a change in the financial gain of the exit? I wouldn't say there's historical data that we can point to that is specific in terms of things that can just say, hey, like here's the data point, here's a published study. You know, I would say our transactions after we've gotten involved in one way, shape, or form probably increase value by anywhere from as little as 20 to as high as 50%. There was one situation we've had where founder had an offer on the table for, I'm going to make up the numbers here. These are by no means real, but had an offer for 20. And by the time we were done, they got an offer and signed transaction at 40. So we have the ability to kind of do that. And I think the worst thing that founders can do for themselves is try to do this themselves and do it alone. Because, you know, we have a database of 450 plus buyers that are interested in acquiring franchisors, franchisees, franchise services. And I think that we really can add a lot of value to a process. And typically when investors or private equity firms reach out directly, you're only negotiating with one person. And I think there's a lot of value to creating competitive tension. And you know, at the end of the day, not only do we know how to position the company and be aggressive on some of the pro forma, the run rate, the ad backs, but we also have the ability to run a really tight process keep everyone on the same timeline and create that competitive tension that drives value at the end of the day. 
makes sense. Yeah, and it's also hard to figure out, I mean, what's the value of a transaction that never happened, right? It's, you know, if they never engaged with you in the first place, it's hard to know how much more value you could have been able to get them. I mean, I mean, maybe you can look back retroactively, but... Yeah, and listen, we had a client call us recently, probably about six or eight months ago, and said, hey, I have an offer from so-and-so. What do you think? And I said, it's a pretty good offer. You know, I don't know that we can help much. You know, I think it's all up to you. And so we're pretty honest and open about that too, in terms of, you know, hey, can we get you a better offer? Maybe, but I think more often than not, we can. And then I think most importantly, and this can't get lost in the conversation, is not all valuations are created equal. You could have two, you know, $100 million offers. And depending on the structure that someone puts on it, they could be very different offers. And I think a lot of founders are more often than not get very caught up in the headline number of, you know, I got valued at X and kind of, maybe overlook some of the more qualitative parts of the deal, especially from a legal perspective, where, you know, maybe you have more liability in one versus the other. But not all deals are created equal and valuation is really only one component of a deal. When you talk about the negotiating side, one of the things that I remember Josh Skolnick saying at, I believe it was last year's springboard, was when working with you guys that you were able to provide to him where he could push and could not push, right? Because a lot of times it's hard to know you know, where you can negotiate in the transaction and where you can't. And so you've been through so many transactions and you can provide that feedback to the founder and where you can negotiate more on. Listen, we have a ton of experience that can't really be replaced. You know, we've negotiated with everyone in home and commercial services in one way, shape or form. We've seen most buyers, you know, participated in 15, 16 transactions of ours over the years, right? So we know what the hot button topics are for everyone, right? And including, hey, we know with this buyer, this is going to matter a lot. We know with that buyer, it's going to matter a lot. Understanding that has really helped us. And Josh Wonick was a great example. Getting a deal done is really hard. And you got to understand where the push and pull is and where to give and where to take and what matters at the end of the day. And I think that's a conversation we have with our clients up front is, hey, there's some economic goals out of a transaction, but what are the non-economic and do you want to work in this business forever, right? Or do you want to transition out over the next two or three years? Or do you want, you know, your son or your daughter to take over at some point in time, right? So there's a lot of things in play that we try to kind of remind everyone about. And recent deal, like, you know, especially with a recent client is when to bring up certain points and when to negotiate certain points. Not everything needs to be negotiated in the top of the first, right? And kind of leaving some things for, hey, we need to get this, but we probably need to give on that in order to get there. There's just a little bit more art than science to kind of get down the qualitative side of deals. Sure. Art of the deal, man. That's interesting though, what you said earlier. $200 million deals, right? Just theoretical deals are not necessarily created equal. I mean, can you give an example of a time when maybe like a 80 or $90 million deal may have been better specifically for what that founder wanted yeah. than maybe a $100 million deal? And what some of those things were that made the difference that were qualitative, not necessarily quantitative? Yeah. I mean, the ones that we see all the time when we talk to founders, and we call it structure. But if you have a $100 million transaction, you know, you could have buyer A offers you $100 million in cash, right? With the opportunity to roll over you know, as much as they're letting you into the company and remain a shareholder, there's another $100 million offer that's $50 million in cash and a $20 million seller note and a $10 million earnout and then equity, right? 
So there's all of those other components of consideration that really matter more than the headline number, right? I would tell you, we've seen a lot of transactions in the past that go unrepresented, get done at these really, really high numbers. But at the end of the day, it's not a $100 million offer. It's really a $50 million offer Mm -hmm. because everything else is contingent. And I think when you have that contingent consideration piece, and we try our hardest not to include them in our transactions, but as soon as the deal ends on day one, you are no longer the majority shareholder, right? And it's someone else's company. And most private equity firms are great at this, but there are some that aren't. But what about achieving an earnout? Are they going to stand in your way of making investments to do that? Are they going to change the numbers, make you hire more people for the growth of the business that kind of in the short term kind of hurt the bottom line? So there's a lot of nuances to valuation that I think people overlook and can kind of get caught off guard on. Can you briefly touch on what an earnout is for those that don't know, Brian? Sure. Earnout is where it's just consenting consideration. So someone will say, hey, I'll pay you if it's a $50 million deal like we described earlier. And we're going to give you an extra $15 million if and only if you hit $6 million of EBITDA next year, right? Or if and only if you have $10 million of revenue next year. Some of those could be difficult to achieve if on day one, when it's someone else's company, they say, hey, you don't have enough people in FranDev or you don't have enough people in marketing and they overlay a million dollars of cost for the benefit of the business in the long run. But in the short term, you know that's going to affect you hitting an EBITDA-based earnout. It's interesting what you're saying about the contingent side of a transaction, because I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, And it's not that the founder, at least this is my opinion, it doesn't mean that as a founder, you think you're smarter than the private equity that's acquiring the business. It's just the fact that you're out of the control. It's completely out of your control what happens, which of course makes sense. I'm looking at some opportunities right now with, if I were to provide my capital, I want control. The person or entity that gives the capital should have the control, but it's something to consider if a lot of your deals are on. Just empirical data. I mean, if I go back and look at the last 20 or 25 transactions on franchising, I want to say only three of them had earnouts. I mean, I think that's what competitive tension in a process eliminates. In our minds, Earnouts are only okay, quote unquote, if they're there as gravy on top of a deal, right? Let's get all the buyers to the same place and maybe someone puts an earnout on the table that allows you to kind of win the deal, so to speak. That's something that we've tried to kind of avoid at all costs and typically doesn't even come up because we'll call buyers back and say, yeah, that structure is not going to work. And we got other parties who are offering all cash. So if you don't want to offer all cash, then you're out. That has kind of eliminated a lot of that stuff from our deals over the years. What about with rolling forward equity into the new co? Like, obviously, I'd imagine a lot of founders do that. It's a great deal. You roll forward and tax deferred. And yeah, any rule of thumb you see with like percentages founders do, or I assume it depends on their age and so many. No, it's all over the map. We've seen some be really aggressive. We've seen some that wish they'd done more. You know, typically, we kind of let the private equity group or the buyer kind of sell why they should roll over more so than we advise on that. You know, that's really up to individuals, tax accountants, you know, wealth advisors and managers. But I would say I've seen it be really successful for a lot of our entrepreneurs. And knock on wood, I can only think of, you know, one instance where the equity, you know, wasn't worth what it was on day one. Because the good part about private equity today is all of these firms have had great track records, which is why they continue to raise money and be able to put more money to work. 
right? And if investors weren't making money, they wouldn't be in business. So I feel like there's some really great investors out there that have just had a track record of success. And you know, if you are an entrepreneur and staying involved in the business, there's some really good opportunities for rollover equity and getting the second bite of the apple that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And I guess in light of Christian, what you had asked about the earnout, I guess, can we explain to our listeners who maybe don't fully understand the roll forward, what we're referring to? Yeah. So again, we'll make the math easy. Go back to a $100 million deal. Typically, that's going to be funded with a combination of equity and debt, right? Say it's a $60 million equity check and $40 million of debt. So if you took $15 million of your proceeds, you could roll it forward tax-free, right? Meaning that you would only be taxed on $85 million of the 100. And that $15 million could buy you 20% of the equity, right? So 15 of the 60 right, would be coming from the selling founder. That money typically goes in, same basis, same share class as the private equity firm, and you still own 25% of the business. So if the business goes on to sell for 300, 400 million at some point in time, you might make a really strong return on that money. And I think we've seen that because a lot of the private equity firms that are successful, especially in franchising, it's about growth, right? Most private equity investors aren't coming in and saying, hey, we're going to cut costs to get to our where we need to be because most of the franchisors we get an opportunity to work with are somewhere in the neighborhood of call it a million to 15 million of EBITDA, right? So probably haven't hit their true growth potential yet. And I think a lot of groups come in to invest to kind of give you the tools to be successful and want to grow the top line in order to kind of make their return. So I think, you know, in that case, Dan, to your point, that rollover equity piece could be really valuable in a couple of years. Even if you roll it over and for some reason you don't have, you know, this crazy return, you're still going to have a, obviously you can't guarantee anything, but you're still having a good return versus wherever else you're going to put your capital, you're putting your capital into a private equity firm, you know, so, and you get to control. Yes, you don't have full control, but you have a lot of say where a lot of your net worth is tied up, have a lot of opportunity to grow it. Most of the folks that we've dealt with, 100% of their net worth is tied up in their business, yeah. right? I think if you've talked to any money manager, watch CNBC and any of the talking heads, it's about diversification. And I think the opportunity to kind of stay invested in your company, but also take some chips off the table, diversify your holdings, I think it's a great play all around. And I would tell you, knock on wood, I'm trying to make sure in my head this is true. We have never taken on a client who has sold 100% of the business, unless forced to by the buyer. Right, because some buyers don't offer rollover equity. But if someone comes to us and says, Hey, I want out a 100% sale, that's not a box with client. That typically that tells me that there's something else going on you know, within the business or outside of the business that probably is not the best story for us to be telling in the market when someone says, Hey, I've been working on this for 10 years, but I'm walking away forever. That's typically not a story we like to tell out in the market. So one question I have too, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this. I know we've been going for a while now, but it's just such a fascinating conversation. But do you guys ever do any like franchisee groups where they own a bunch of locations, right? And they're looking to have an exit as well? Are you phone tapping me? (laughs) Yes. We actually advised on the buy side in a franchisee deal in the authority brand system earlier in the year. Service Mines down in Florida. They're the leading Mr. Sparky within the state of Florida for authority brands. We have four other franchisee deals that we're probably going to do in the next six to 12 months. So we're starting to see that be a really interesting place that private equity is spending time, energy, and money. 
you know, also franchise services, right? We did the franchise Fastlane deal earlier this year with Ryan and Carrie, and it was a great outcome for everyone. I think that their new partners is a really good fit for them in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. Knock on wood, we got one or two that are in the market right now from a franchise services perspective that I think are going to be really well received. We kind of do everything across everything, Christian. And I think we're realizing, you know, we just know that market, know the buyer universe and understand a lot of the complexities of these systems and the intricacies, et cetera, that we can position all of those assets for sale. Cool. Yeah, I was just asking for a friend. Not like it's a dream of mine to do that someday. Gotcha. You know what to call. <laughs> Will do. So, Brian, if someone wants to get in touch with you or, you know, with your firm, what is the best way? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys will put this out on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out directly on LinkedIn. I'm happy to give you guys my email address, BLS at boxwithpartners.com. Feel free to reach out via the website. All of our emails are on there or give me a call. Always happy to talk and introduce ourselves and try to help you think through where you are because everyone's at a different stage. But if you're ever considering kind of selling your business, go to conferences and talk to people who've been through it before and been in your shoes and made that decision. I can't really recommend that enough. And more often than not, I think you'll probably find your way back to us if you do that anyway. But if you want to start with us, you can do that too. Love it, man. Well, this conversation was awesome. I mean, there were so many more things I'm sure we could ask. Maybe we'll have you come back at some point, but really appreciate your time, Brian. And thanks everyone for coming on. We'll see you on the next episode. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com.